please turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 18. We're going to be in 2 Kings, a little bit in 2 Chronicles, and also in the book of Isaiah this morning, looking at Hezekiah's life. We're going to start in 2 Kings chapter 18. Many years ago in the, uh, the mental hospitals in Europe, they had a crude way of testing whether or not patients were ready to leave the hospital and re-enter the real world. Now, one of the things that they would do is they would uh, send a staff member into the janitor's closet and the staff member would put uh, the plug in the drain of the sink and then he would turn the water on and wait till the water was overflowing. Then he would go and get the patient, hand the patient a mop, put the patient in the closet, close the door and tell the patient to clean up. He'd leave for a few minutes and come back. And if the patient hadn't figured out to turn off the water and to pull the plug, he wasn't ready yet to go back into the real world. He hadn't figured out how to get to the root of the matter. matter. Turn off the water, pull the plug, go to the source, go to the heart, go to the fundamental issue and solve it. The root of the matter for us in our relationship with God is simple. It is trust. Do we trust God? Do we trust him not just for a moment of crisis, but do we trust him moment by moment? Do we trust that he is good, that he is wise, that he is powerful? Trust is the fundamental issue in our relationship with God. And consequently, God tests his servants in the area of trust. This morning, we're going to look at the life of Hezekiah, and we're going to see that God tested him in three areas of trust. I want to begin, though, by giving some of the background on his life. So if you would, please read with me in 2 Kings chapter 18 and verse 1. It says, now it came about in the third year of Hosea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, became king. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. He did right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. Verse 3 is a synthesis. It's a summary of Hezekiah's life and reign. And overall, the evaluation is he was a good king. He's certainly much better than his father Ahaz and much better than his son Manasseh. On the whole, he followed the pattern of the life of David. Specifically, he restored temple worship. The worship of the Lord in the temple at Jerusalem had been neglected or overrun by idolatry for for decades under his father Ahaz. And so what Hezekiah did when he began to reign is he went in and he cleaned up the temple physically. He opened the doors. He began funding for the priests and the Levites again so that offerings and sacrifices could be made. Then he sent people throughout the land of Judah and they, they destroyed all of the idols. He sent some of them even into the northern tribes to tear down the Asherah, to tear down the poles of worship on the high places and to wipe out all idolatry. He reinstituted the Passover, remember, which was the fundamental or the the essential feast of Israel, reminding them of their identity. It reminded them of their unique relationship with God, that he had purchased them out of slavery and they belonged to him. That he had proven his love and his loyalty to them, his faithfulness to his promises to Abraham. That he had demonstrated his power because through signs and wonders he destroyed all of Pharaoh's army. And sent plagues upon the nation of Egypt. And so he reinstituted the Passover, that great reminder of who they were as God's chosen people. He even went into the northern tribes 
to the peoples that remained and invited them to come and to worship at Jerusalem again. And so Hezekiah was rated overall as a really good king. Even so, God tested him. God tested his trust or his faith. And the way that he did that was this nation Assyria began to threaten the nation of Judah. They began to threaten. And remember last week we saw that in the midst of that threat, rather than turning to the Lord, his God, he turned to Egypt. And he trusted in Egypt to deliver him, and he made an alliance with Egypt. Apparently he even invited the Philistines to join that alliance. And when they wouldn't, he went down and conquered the Philistines and set up his own government down there, just like Syria and Israel had threatened against him. But the threat became greater and greater. The Assyrians actually marched into Judah and they wiped out every town except for two. Lachish and Jerusalem were the only towns that remained. And this is how Hezekiah responded. If you turn to chapter 18, 2 Kings verse 13, it says, Now in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and he seized them. Then Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent a letter to king of, the king of Assyria at Lachish saying, I have done wrong. Withdraw from me. Whatever you impose upon me, I will bear. So the king of Assyria required Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. That's a lot of gold and silver. Hezekiah gave him all the silver which was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. At that time, Hezekiah cut off the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the doorposts which Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid. And he gave it to the king of Assyria. And he thought to himself, I've bought him off. He'll stay away. But he didn't. From Lachish, the king of Assyria sent some of his army and sent his commander, the Rabshakeh, Right up to the very gates of Jerusalem. Remember in fulfillment of the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 7. Assyria will reach right up to your throat. Right up to your capital city. And the courier, the representative, the Rabshakeh said. The king of Assyria essentially has decided enough is enough. Your tribute is not enough. Surrender to me and be deported or else you will be destroyed. And Isaiah records this event in Isaiah chapter 36. I want you to turn there with me. Isaiah chapter 36 and verse 1. Now in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib king of Assyria came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and he seized them. And it was at that point in time that Hezekiah sent a tribute to him, which was not enough. The king of Assyria sent his Rabshakeh, his commander-in-chief, from Lachish to Jerusalem to King Hezekiah along with a very large army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway of the fuller's field. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, that is, Hezekiah's chief of staff, and Shebna the scribe and Joah the son of Asaph, the recorder, came out to him. Then Rabshakeh said to them, Say now to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria. What is this confidence that you have? I say, your counsel and strength for war are only empty words. Now on whom do you rely that you have rebelled against me? 
Behold, you rely on the staff of this crushed reed, even on Egypt, on which if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who rely on him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and said to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? See, he'd done his intelligence and realized Hezekiah had wiped out the high places. He just didn't know that God had commanded him to do so. Now, therefore, come make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part to put riders on them. How then can you repulse one official of the least of my master's servants and rely on Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Have I now come up without the Lord's approval against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. And he tried to demoralize the people who were listening on the wall. Hezekiah's representative said, don't speak to us in Judean. Don't speak to us in the Hebrew, which the people can understand. The commander went on, he said, I wasn't sent just to you or just to Hezekiah. I was sent to tell all these people, don't trust Hezekiah and don't trust the Lord. See, God tests his servants. First of all, Hezekiah is tested in terms of his security and his fear. God tests his servants. He tests to see what is in their hearts. How will Hezekiah respond? Well, at this point in time, the army of Egypt is preparing for its own battle against Assyria, and so they can't come. Hezekiah is out of options. There's nowhere else to turn. And so finally, finally, rather than turning to any other source, rather than, like his father, turning to foreign alliances or idols or his own strength, finally Hezekiah turns to the Lord. Read with me in chapter 37, verse 1. When King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes. He covered himself with sackcloth and entered the house of the Lord. It's an acknowledgement that he has no strength to fend off this attack. Then he sent Eliakim, who was over the household with Shebna the scribe and the elders of the priests, covered with sackcloth. To Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amoz, they said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, this day is a day of distress, rebuke, and rejection. For children have come to birth, and there is no strength to deliver. What I think he means by that analogy is the children are the alliance that Ahaz has tr- or Hezekiah has tried to form. But these children can't even come to birth. They cannot deliver. Hezekiah is saying, all of my plans have failed. I give up. Tell Isaiah to plead with God that God would deliver us. Verse 4. Perhaps the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to reproach the living God and will rebuke the words which the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, offer a prayer for the remnant that is left. Please ask Ahaz to beseech God to deliver us. We have nowhere else to turn. This is Isaiah's response. Verse 5, the servants of the king came to Isaiah Isaiah said to them, thus you shall say to your master, this is what the Lord says, do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard with which the servants of of, the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he will hear a rumor and return to his own land and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. 
that point in time, the commander of the armies actually withdrew the troops because he heard that the king of Assyria had moved on to Libna and he was fighting against a different city, so he withdrew. But he didn't want the people in Jerusalem to think that they were off the hook, so he sent a letter to them threatening again and saying, don't be confident just because we've withdrawn. Don't believe Hezekiah. Don't trust in the Lord. Have any of the other gods of the nations around been able to deliver? Neither will the Lord. No one is more powerful than the king of Assyria. We will destroy you unless you surrender. And what does Hezekiah do? Again, he turns just to the Lord. He takes the matter before the Lord. Verse 14. Then Hezekiah took the letter from the hand of the messengers and he read it and he went up to the house of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. Hezekiah prayed to the Lord saying, O Lord who commands armies, the God of Israel, our God, who is enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And listen to all the words of Sennacherib, who sent them to reproach the living God. Truly, O Lord, the king of Assyria, the kings of Assyria have devastated all the countries in their lands. Truly, they have cast their gods into the fire. Why? Because they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. So they have destroyed them. But now, O Lord, you are different. Deliver us from his hand in order that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are God. See, in the midst of this horrifically frightening situation where Hezekiah's life is in danger and the life of the entire nation is in danger, finally Hezekiah turns to the Lord and he realizes, you know, this is bigger than just us. What's happening here is that the king of Assyria is blaspheming the name of the Lord. He's comparing the Lord to all the other gods around. And finally, Hezekiah has this moment of clarity and he calls out upon the Lord and he says, deliver us so that the nations may understand who you are, that you're different. See, God allows us to be tested. He allows us to enter into fearful situations so that in the midst of our fear, we can turn to him and trust. And then all the peoples around us watch us as we trust in the Lord our God. God allows that to happen in our lives. Why? Because we are here on this earth to be a demonstration of his power and his strength. And our trust in him, even if we should suffer in this life, we still trust. What's the worst that the world can do to us? To take our lives. But even then, if we belong to God, we are safe because he will deliver us into his eternal presence. We're safe forever. If you have children, you know that at some point in time, nearly every child becomes afraid of the dark and monsters in the closet, right? Remember one night I was trying to get my son to go to sleep. I was sitting next to his bed, or sitting on his bed next to him, and um, He's just about asleep and all of a sudden his closet door rattled. And he woke up, he said, Daddy, what's that? Is it a monster? And I said, I don't think so, but let me check. So I went over and I opened his closet door and I'm thinking, you know, something's fallen down and I look all around and nothing had fallen down. I couldn't see any reason why the door would rattle and the air conditioner hadn't turned on. There was nothing, no cause, but I was very convinced it wasn't monsters. 
And so I went back and I sat next to him. I said, pal, you're safe. Because I'm with you. And I put my hand on him. And he breathed deeply and he fell asleep. God tests us in our fears. Will we trust him? See, in this case, in the midst of Hezekiah's fears, finally, when he is at the end of himself and there are no other resources around, finally he realizes that he can trust the Lord and he goes to God and he says, God, please deliver us. And that is, in fact, what God did. I want you to turn with me to chapter 36, 37 rather, verse 35. It says, Lord speaking, I will defend this city. And I will save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Then the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 of the camp of the Assyrians. When the men rose early in the morning, behold, all of these were dead. See, what happened was the king of Assyria, he was fighting against other towns and then the Egyptians marched on him. He turned and he destroyed the Egyptian army. But shortly after that, his soldiers woke up the next morning and 185,000 of their companions were dead. The Assyrian army was decimated. And so Sennacherib packed up what was left and he marched home to Assyria. Verse 37, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. Came about as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, that Adremelech and Sherezar, his sons, killed him with the sword, and they escaped into the land of Ararat. And Esarhaddon, his son, became king in his place. And the Assyrians never again attacked the nation of Judah. And Hezekiah was delivered because he called out to the Lord his God. But God wasn't finished with him. He tested him in another way. He tested him in affliction. I want you to turn to the book of 2 Chronicles with me. Keep your place here in Isaiah chapter 38 and turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 32 and verse 22. 2 Chronicles 32 verse 22. So the Lord saved Hezekiah and then the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib king of Assyria and from the hand of all others and guided them on every side. And many were bringing gifts to the Lord at Jerusalem and choice presents to Hezekiah, king of Judah, so that he was exalted in the sight of all the nations thereafter. In those days, Hezekiah became mortally ill and he prayed to the Lord. The Lord spoke to him and gave him a sign. See, what happened was when the Assyrian army was decimated on Judean soil and they left, all the nations around heard about this great deliverance and they praised God for it. And they also praised Hezekiah. And his wealth was restored and his fame grew. He was famous among all the nations of the earth. And as a result, his pride grew. And he began to think that he had accomplished something. As a result, God stepped into his life and he touched him personally, directly, with a mortal illness. Turn back to chapter 38 of Isaiah. Isaiah records the details. Verse 1. In those days, Hezekiah became mortally ill. Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord, and he said, Remember now, O Lord, I beseech you, 
how I have walked before you in truth and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. He turned to the Lord. Verse 4, and the word of the Lord came to Isaiah saying, Go and say to Hezekiah, I have another message for him, a new message. Thus says the Lord, the God of your father, David, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you in this city from the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city. This shall be the sign to you from the Lord, that the Lord will do this thing that he has spoken. Behold, I will cause the shadow on the stairway, which has gone down with the sun on the stairway of Ahaz, to go back 10 steps. So the sun's shadow went back 10 steps on the stairway on which it had gone down. The stairway was probably like a sundial. It was functioning like a sundial. And God said, let me prove to you my ability to heal you from a sickness that will inevitably lead to death unless I intervene. I'm going to mess with the physics of the solar system. I'm going to change either the rotation of the earth or the movement of the sun, the placement, uh, the placement of the sun and how the two interact or maybe the way that light refracts through the atmosphere. But I'm going to do a miracle that will just amaze you. I'm going to turn back time. This miracle apparently was seen by the Babylonians who were so fascinated with astronomy that later on they would send emissaries to find out because they had observed it and they had heard that it was attached to Hezekiah's illness and his healing and that the Lord God had done it. And they want to find out what is this amazing event, this power of the Lord. God heals him. You see, I've noticed in my, my own life and I've seen it in the lives of others when, when we are touched physically, There's something about that kind of trial that really sharpens our focus. And I've noticed that that people either get angry and bitter at God, that he doesn't give them perfect health at all times and in all ways, or they grow wise. And in wisdom, they begin to realize absolutely everything that we have is a gift from God. Every day we have, every breath we breathe, This physical body that we have is a gift from God. As far as we know, Moses just wrote one psalm, but in the middle of it, he says this. So teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. What he means is, let us realize that life is, he says, like a hand breath. That is about nine inches in your sight. It's short, we're just a vapor, we're a breath. Teach us to be wise and number our days. That is, teach us to live our days according to your purpose for every breath that we breathe. And if you look at Hezekiah's prayer, he does understand this. Finally, he understands the reason that God has given him life and health is so that he can worship God. Look with me in chapter 38, verse 17. He says, Lo, for my own welfare I had great bitterness. It is you who has kept my soul from the pit of nothingness. You have cast all my sins behind your back. For Sheol cannot thank you. Death cannot praise you. Those who go down to the pit cannot hope for your faithfulness. Now, now what he's saying is this. In Hezekiah's theology, he certainly knew about the resurrection. So he knew that he would one day again worship the Lord. What he's saying is, once I die, I can't worship you in front of other people. Once I die, I can't proclaim that I trust you and that you are 
good and wise and powerful in front of other people. My opportunity to worship you and witness for you on earth is gone. So God, finally, I request of you, extend my days so that I can serve you. In other words, he has another moment of clarity. Just as the nation was placed on this earth so that people could see them trust in God and not in idols or not in other nations, so the individual is placed upon earth so that he will worship God and declare God's greatness and praise throughout all of the earth. And so in a moment of crisis, in both times of fear and then in times of personal affliction, Hezekiah gets the point and he turns to the Lord. So Hezekiah's fortunes really turn around. Uh, keep your place here again in Isaiah. Turn back to Second Chronicles again. Chapter 32, verse 27. It says, now Hezekiah had immense riches and honor. And he made for himself treasuries for silver, gold, precious stones, spices, shields, and all kinds of valuable articles. Storehouses also for the produce of grain, wine, and oil, pens of all kinds of cattle and sheepfolds for the flocks. He made cities for himself and acquired flocks and herds in abundance. For God had given him very great wealth was Hezekiah who stopped the upper outlet of the waters of Gihon and directed them to the west side of the city of David. And Hezekiah prospered in all that he did, even in the matter of the envoys of the rulers from, of the rulers from Babylon, who sent to inquire of the wonder that had happened in the land, that is, time turning backwards. God left him alone only to test him, that he might know all that was in his heart. What that means in that last verse is this time, When his wealth grew and his power grew and his fame grew, God didn't step in and touch his body. This time God tested him with affluence and security and the affirmation of the nations around him. And it's interesting because Hezekiah did a wonderful job finally when he was in distressing circumstances, turning to the Lord and trusting him. But it was when things were easy that he failed. In this test, when things were easy and everything was going right for him, that's when he dropped his guard and that's when he failed. Turn back with me to chapter 39 of Isaiah and verse 1. At that time, Merodach Baladon, the son of Baladon, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he had heard that he had been sick and he had recovered. Now, it was normal practice for kings of other nations To send a letter. If someone was sick, send a letter of condolence. If they'd recovered from a disease like this, send a letter of congratulations and a present. Apparently these emissaries also came because of this astronomical event that was amazing. They'd never seen anything like it. Okay, So this is a a normal thing. But there's an ulterior motive here. Because Merodach Baladon had actually been defeated already twice by the Assyrians. And yet he kept coming back. And now he is looking to create a new alliance. And he sends these representatives to test the waters and see, will Hezekiah join us in alliance? Verse 2, Hezekiah was pleased. And he showed them all his treasure house, the silver and the gold and the spices and the precious oil and his whole armory and all that was found in his treasuries. 
There was nothing in his house nor in all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. In other words, he was showing off. He was saying, we are a worthy ally against the Assyrians. Look at all we have accumulated. Remember all that we have accomplished. It was our nation that repulsed the Assyrian army. And then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, what did these men say? From where have they come to you? As if Isaiah didn't know. Hezekiah said, they have come from, to me from a far country. They came from Babylon. He said, what have they seen in your house? So Hezekiah answered, they have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing among all my treasuries that I have not shown them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that your fathers have laid up in store to this day will be carried to Babylon. Nothing will be left says the Lord. And some of your sons who will issue from you, whom you will beget, they will be taken away. They will become officials in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord which you have spoken is good, for he thought, at least there will be peace and truth in my days. (laughs) Very different response than when he was touched physically, right? Because, well, at least it's not going to happen to me. See, when, when, we, when we suffer physically or when we're in frightening situations, it has the effect of, of really sharpening our focus. Especially I've seen when people are right at the edge of death, a life-threatening illness, they realize, gosh, I just have a few days left. I need to make them count. Well, all of us should think that way because we don't know how many days are left. Why are we here We are here to proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. That is why we exist on earth. That's why God extends our days, if he extends them at all. And suffering often causes us to really sharpen our focus on those days. On the other hand, when we're living in affluence and people are praising us, it is so difficult to stay sharp. And to stay focused on why we exist. For Hezekiah, he forgot. But he forgot that it was God who had accomplished the victory, right? And it was God who had restored all his wealth. And it was God who had healed him and extended his days. And if there was any praise that was coming to him, he needed to turn and say, focus that on the Lord God, the the God who commands armies. Because anything that I have done, anything that I have accomplished is a gift from him. That's worship. When we worship, we're safe and protected. We're staying sharp and focused. But he took his eyes off of that and he began to accept all the credit for himself. And he began to really enjoy receiving all of that credit. See, I believe personally that this is the greatest threat that the church in America faces. Now, I I recognize the fact that the church is increasingly persecuted in the United States, that Christian faith is marginalized more and more. I understand that, that, and I think that we should use the means available to us to fight against that. But I personally don't think that that's the greatest threat to the church. I think the greatest threat to the church is because, relatively speaking, American Christians are incredibly affluent. And so, by and large, what happens when we come to church is we come to consume. We're consumers. Because that's what we do in every other area of our lives. But that's not why the church exists. But I think the affluence and the affirmation that we do receive 
causes us to drop our guard and to lose our focus. The reason that the church exists is to make disciples of all nations. That is why we're here. And it may be that God calls some of you into the arena of of politics or civil service. And God bless you. May you be there and be a light for Jesus Christ there. But the church, we should, as a church, we should never believe that the ultimate hope in the world is through the power structures of the world because it's not. The ultimate hope for this nation and for all nations on earth is the return of Jesus Christ. That's our only hope. That's our only hope. And so we should live as salt and light in all different areas in the world, whether, whatever your profession is. But as believers in Jesus Christ, which is the most fundamental component of your identity, we should live to make sure that people know of the return of Jesus Christ. Okay, that is why the church exists. And it is so easy when we are comfortable and affluent to lose focus. I have a friend who, who lives in Asia. He's a pastor in Asia. He lives in a country where there's persecution of the church. Where at any moment, literally, the police could break down his door and take him to jail. And I asked him one time, I said, how would you like for me to pray for you? And he said, well, I, I need to remind you because I always have to remind Americans of exactly the same thing. Don't pray that our persecution would be taken away. <laughs> so really? That's what I pray for you every time I pray for you. And honestly, I, it's really hard for me to honor that request that he's made, but I understand his point. As he said, because of the persecution, we stay really focused. Every day we count the cost of walking with Jesus Christ. Every day we are reminded that we are here to share the gospel because if we're taken away, there needs to be someone there to take our place and proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. So we are always sharing the gospel and building up believers. That is why we are here. And that persecution, said, Brian, it helps keep us sharp. I still pray that God would take away their persecution. I can't help it. I pray that God would make the doors much more wide open, but I pray that at the same time, he would make their church remain sharp and focused. And I pray exactly the same thing for us. That we would stay focused on the things that genuinely matter and that matter forever. Because the praise of this world, the approval of man, it's fleeting, it's false. Only God's opinion of us matters. Because only God always evaluates us according to truth. And only God's opinion of us will endure forever. Only God's opinion matters. Two lessons I want us to take away from Hezekiah's experience. First is this. We will be tested. It's not a question of if, just when and how. It might be through dangerous, frightening situations. It might be through affliction in our own bodies. It could be through a variety of other things. It could be through affluence and ease. But we will be tested. God always tests his servants. God tested Abraham in the matter of his love for his son. God tested the nation of Israel as they wandered through the wilderness. Would they trust him to provide bread and water, the sustenance of life? God tested King Ahaz, and he failed. God tested Hezekiah. He failed, succeeded, failed, succeeded. (laughs) Kind of a mixed history. God tested his ultimate servant, Jesus. Brought him into the wilderness. Tested him. Would he trust in God alone and in God's resources alone? And God will test us. God will test us. So we need to be prepared. Second lesson. 
God alone can be trusted. You know, ultimately, we can't even trust ourselves. We don't have the strength to deliver ourselves, but God can. Just in these few verses that we've looked at this morning, these three stories, God does amazing things. He turns the heart of a king so he doesn't attack. He destroys an entire foreign army, the strongest army that existed on the planet at that point in time. He turned back time. He healed an incurable disease. God can be trusted. And when we remind ourselves constantly of our own weakness and our own vulnerability, but of the greatness of God, we're in a wonderful place. And that's worship. As we close, what I'd like for us to do is just take a few moments quietly and affirm our confidence in God. Let's just take a few moments and affirm our confidence and trust in him and maybe ask the Lord to reveal to you how can you consistently remain trusting, not for a moment of crisis, but moment by moment, Let's take a few moments silently before the Lord and then I'll close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, you have drawn us this morning again to the the heart of the matter, which is trust in you. Consistent confidence in you, in your power, in your wisdom, and in your goodness in our lives, even when things seem dark and, and threatening even in the midst of fear or affliction, that we can trust in you alone, even in the midst of affluence and ease when things are moving forward and seem good in our lives, our trust is in you because all that we have is a gift from you. All that we are is a gift from you. We claim no credit. Instead, we honor and we worship you. I pray, Father, that increasingly so, you'd cause us as a congregation's body of Christ to display our confidence in you to the watching world. And I pray that others will be drawn to faith, to trust and confidence in your son, Jesus Christ, through us. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. God bless you. Remember uh, this Saturday, if you want to come to walk through the Bible, uh, let us know that you're coming so we can get you a notebook. Have a great day.